Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Teresa. I'm an alcoholic. And um, thank you, Julie, for asking me to speak. And, um, of course, you know, I try to get out of it. I'm like, hey, why don't we have a discussion meeting tonight? I thought there was going to be like five people here. I was like, oh, yes, you know. And um, so you can tell I really am, don't love to speak. I really don't. I, I'm, I get really fearful. It's been painful for me to be secretary because... I have to get up here every week, wear a dress, look, you know, and just, it's kind of hard, you know, so it went pretty good, it went better than I thought, and it's, this is the last night I have to be up here, so I'm kind of glad, I, I don't want to make anyone feel bad, you know, but this is what you do, I, I mean, I have a tendency to make things look worse than they are, but it's actually been good, because I was trying to tell our next secretary what it was like, and he's like, oh, God, you're not pushing that very good at all, you know? So um, I grew up in, um, I'll just tell you, um, well, first, um, I my sobriety date is 2-26-1986. I have almost 31 years. Um, I got sober when I was 22. I have a sponsor. I've had the same sponsor for 28 years. Um, her name's Susie N. She lives in Palm Springs. Um, I sponsor women. I'm going through the big book and the 12 and 12, and this is my home group. So um, I got sober. Well, I grew up in um, California, and I'll try to get to my sobriety because sometimes I get into my sobriety and I run out of time. So I'm going to try to do good tonight. You know, sometimes it comes out good, sometimes not. So, um, I grew up in, um, California. I grew up in Santa Monica. Then we moved to Redondo Beach and I went to school there, did everything there, drank there. Um, you know, and I always was that kind of kid that was, how would I say that had that big, weird, awkward, like I'm awkward. I'm like still kind of awkward, but I tried, I talk a lot. So it makes it like a little bit better awkward. And um, I had this huge, always this big lonely pit, you know, like I was never content and I was always bored and always looking for something. And that was kind of how I felt all the time. And so I was, I always felt like I was a perfect person for drinking. And um, so when I started drinking, I really liked drinking. And, um, you know, I'm... I'm the kind of person that's not a bathtub drinker. I don't stay at home and get out the robe and sit and drink. I get out the party clothes and it's on. Do you know? It's it's like I turn into like this different person. Like I have energy. I'm talky. I feel good and I look good and you know everything kind of comes together. And um, you know I started drinking a lot in high school. I start drinking in junior high. I start drink. I will start in sixth grade because our parents were always gone. So my house, party house, and um, you know, it started out kind of slow, and then it just got to the point. I, you know, where you cross that line. You know, you just mine didn't happen all at once. It took a while, and um, 
our thing was we used to, I used to live two blocks from the beach, and um, that's what we did. We hung out at the beach. That was our lives, you know. We just got our big 12 packs and had someone buy it, and we'd go on the jetty and drink, like, beer and just get drunk in the sun and just be falling through the rocks, swimming. I'd have to swim because I'd have to jump off the jetty because I couldn't walk on the jetty. And, you know, that's what my life was. It was a, it was all about drinking and where I could get the drink and um, wherever the party was and when we were going to go to the beach. And, you know, that's how my life was. And um, I got out of high school and I was 18 and we used to, I used to get drunk. Like I'm not a, I don't like trouble. Like I'm not a person that's going to like do trouble when I'm not drinking. But when I start drinking, trouble kind of comes, you know, it's like, you know, I start drinking and then I decide, you know, Hey, I think I'm going to steal some stuff today. You know, like my sister and my cousin were kind of shoplifters and I was really bad at shoplifting. I should have never been a shoplifter. And, um, you know, one day I needed an outfit to go out in and we all went to the mall and we paired off and, um, you know, I got caught for shoplifting, of course, because I was bad at it. And I had a lot of stuff. Like, I had over, like, the limit, and it was a felony, and I just turned 18, and um, I had to go to court. My friend was underage. She got caught, too, but she didn't have to go to court because she was 17. And I went to court, and I got, uh, you know, I got a lot of service work. I got this, like, when I went, I got like 500 hours of community service work, and I thought, geez, that's kind of a lot for that, right? I was like, my head was like, how am I going to service work, drink, and party? Like, you know how you're all thinking when you're drinking? Like, all that stuff's a lot. And so I had that 500 hours, and my first job was pretty easy. I just had to go to this um, daycare and help out, and it was pretty easy. And I thought, ooh, this isn't too bad. I can do this, drink, and still work. And that went kind of good, and then my party kind of took over, and then that kind of went by the wayside, and then I went back to court, like, again, and the judges, and I always get the same judge, Judge Willett, and um, he's like, did you finish that? And I'm like, you know, no, that was so much. I need a little bit more time. He's like, okay, so then I got at this other job that was kind of easy, and then I, the same thing happens. You know, I start partying. I can't do the community work. I go back to court again, and he's like, oh, my God, Teresa, you know, and I'm just like, I'm sorry, that's just so much, and he's like, well, this is the deal, you're going to pick up papers on the beach, and I'm just like, oh, my God, my mind's like, how am I getting out of this, there's no way I'm wearing an orange suit with a stick in front of my friends, that's not happening, and um, that's what my job was, and it was like 6 o'clock in the morning, there's like, I was just like, this is getting just so bad, and um so that didn't work out because I was not, I did that one time and it was horrible. And so I went back to court because I wasn't going to do it. And I went to court and I told this huge story. I mean, there's all these people in the room. And I said, I got a, you know, this guy tried to get me in his van. It's really dangerous. And, and everyone was quiet in the courtroom. They're like, what a dumb, like, I'm sure they're thinking, what is this person doing? That They're not getting out of this, you know? And I, um, you know, I told the story, and Judge Willett just said, Teresa, you know what, you're, you're, that's it, you're going to jail, and I was like, what, and he's like, oh, yeah, you're going to jail, and I'm like, well, can I get my stuff, like, do we, get, do I get to go home and get some stuff, and he's like, nope, you don't, and I was like, 
right, like right now we're going to jail? And he's like, yeah. And um, right there I went to jail. I mean, I got the shackles on and I had to go on this big bus. And I was like, well, how long am I going to jail for? And he's like, well, three months because that's how many hours you still have to do. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, could this get any worse? And um, so I went to jail for three months. And I have to say, jail wasn't that bad. It was kind of a lounging type of situation. I got to read a lot and do some stuff and eat for free and have a free place. And I thought it was going to be really bad. I was kind of scared, like, in my mind. But it actually, it wasn't so bad. I made friends in there. I was like, you know, wasn't too bad. And um, I got out of that. At, at, I got three months. I got out. And I proceeded to drink and drink. And, um, you know, I did other stuff. I, um, you know, I did other drugs and stuff like that. And, um, and when I was t- about 22, I decided... Um, I to come. I had to come home and live. I lost my job, and I wasn't doing very good. And you know how we are. We tell you know how you tell your parents. Oh, I'm. I need help. I, this is what I do. I I want help so I can get out of what I'm doing. You know, like I could get some help for this bad stuff I'm doing. So they're like, okay, you you can move back home, but we want you to go to meetings and you know blah dee blah. And I'm like, okay, you know, you agree to it. And I moved back home, and, you know, I was doing good. I was, like, 22, and, you know, I was going to meetings. I was sitting in the back of the meetings, and right after the meetings were done, I was, like, right out. I didn't talk to anybody, of course. And, um, you know, I was kind of one of those that just wasn't really into it. And then one time I was at the meeting, and I was thinking, my mind started thinking, and I've been sober kind of, I'd been sober for a couple months, and I, my mind started to take over, and my parents were really happy. They're like, oh, you're doing so good, and and, uh, and uh, I went home, and I got this plan cooking in my mind right after the meeting, right? It was, like, really weird. I just had a meeting, and this plan comes, and I started thinking, God, you know, I'm going to have a lie tonight, and I called my friend, and he met me down the street, and you know, I'm like, I'm going to the movies, and I'll see you later, and they're like, okay, you know, like, they thought I was doing so good, and this plan was cooking, and I met my friend, and I went to, like, every bar this night, I started at the poop deck, I went to the Red Onion, oh my god, I was, got, I just hit everything, and I was super drunk by the end of the night, and I was just loved it, I was like, oh, gee, you know that, god, I'm feeling good again, you know, it's like, the sobriety is not happening, and, um, you know, I got out of that bar, and my friend's like, well, I can't drive, and I'm like, I'm not driving. I'm like, I think we should walk, because we're both drunk, and he's like, well, I think you could drive, and I'm like, well, I don't know. I think if I do drive, and we get in trouble, I want you to swear, and nothing's going to happen, and he's like, I promise, and I'm like, okay, because I don't know if this is a good idea, so we got in the car, and of course, I'm driving out of the driveway of the Red Onion, and his door came open, and I decided to let go of the steering wheel and help him with his door. Don't ask me why. I get drunk, and I do bad stuff, and I hit this car while I was helping him driving. And I was like, I told you. I knew I shouldn't have drive. I just felt not good about this. And, and then he's like, well, just keep going. And we looked over, and there was this cop giving this guy a ticket right across, this, right across from me. And I was like, oh, my God. And I just looked at that cop, and he looked at me, and I just thought, you know what? 
I'm leaving the scene. I'm going. It's going. So we, I just started going. I go, shut the door. Come on, we're getting out of here. He's like, Teresa, you're busted. He sees you. There's no way. I'm like, we're going. We're going. And we were going. I was driving this pickup truck and all over. There must have been four cop cars. And he's like, pull over. You're not going anywhere. And I'm like, nope, we're getting away. And I go, I'm not going to jail. I can't go to jail again. I'm going to go to jail for a long time. You don't understand. And he's like, well, I understand this, that you're pretty much in trouble right now. You just pull over. And I kept going. I went for a long time. And finally I pulled over. And, you know, I, um, you know when they ask you, they go, oh, miss, have you been drinking? And I'm like, no, no, uh-uh, not, nope, not drinking. And he's like, well, can you step out of the car? And I totally failed everything. And, well, we're, you're going to get arrested tonight. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know. And I just, that pit, just, I knew that was, I knew it, you know. And I went to jail that night, and I knew I wanted my one phone call, too, you know. Because when I get drunk, I start getting obnoxious. And I want my phone call, and I want to get out of there, and I want this, and I want that. And I start, I got this little tin cup, and I start playing on the bars with it. And broom, broom, I want my phone call. And, and then... Um, then they put me in the soundproof room, right? So then I just had to, like, sober up, you know. And then the morning started coming, and I was like, oh, my God, I feel so bad. And I knew the consequences were coming, and and I knew I got my phone, finally got my phone call, and I called my dad, and he came, picked me up. And, that you know, that look in their eyes, they're just looking at you like another drunken, you know, moment, and how could you, and, you know, you promised us, and you're going to meetings, and it it was pretty sad, you know, and my dad was super pissed, and so we went home, he's like, you're going to treatment, you're in trouble, we're going to court, you got to go to court, and so um, he's like, I want you to pack all your stuff, we're going to go talk to this counselor, you got a court date, we're going to go do that, and then you're going to treatment, and I was like, what do you say to that, you know, and um, I already had a felony, and I, I knew I was going to be in trouble for this hit-and-run thing, and so I went and did all that, and I went and got this extension for, for court, from court for three months so I could go to treatment, and I went to treat. I thought I was going to the Betty Ford Center, you know, it was kind of by my, my friends, and I thought they could just drive out to Palm Springs on the weekends, we could all, you know, see each other, but that wasn't happening, I was like, I want to go to Betty Ford, and he's like, no, you're not going to Betty Ford, you're not going anywhere in California, you're, and I'm like, well, where do you think we, I should go, and he, the courts gave you an option, they want you to go to Tucson, and I thought, Tucson, that was like so far, you know, and so I went to, he drove me to Tucson, and I was just... <laughs> It was hard, you know, I was like dripping sweat, just coming off all that alcohol and then, you know, and all the stuff I was doing that night and it was, it was pretty hard and um, he dropped me off at treatment and left. I was like, geez, like out in the middle of the desert, I was just like, you know, I was kind of scared and um, I went to treatment, stayed there for 28 days and I thought I was going home. I thought, ooh you know, I'll go home, that's what the court said, I could come home, we'd evaluate the situation and see what where we'd go from there, and I got at, I got called into the office or something, I'm like, hmm, what's this all about, I was like, you know, I was doing everything perfect, I was so good in treatment, 
And I thought for sure I was going home. And they're like, oh, we don't think you're going to do good if you go home. And I'm like, really? I'm like, why? I'm doing so good here. And they're like, yeah, but we've seen young people like you. And we think you should go to uh, some other treatment stuff. And I'm like, well, okay. Well, we're I could go home to California, right? And they're like, no, then we're, we're going to send you this place called Santa Monica. And I'm like, oh, good. That's kind of by where I live. And and they're like, yeah, no, it's in Nebraska. And I was like, Jesus, you know, I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't, I'll just go, I'll, I don't, I'll go to jail, you know, like I like jail. I went and I went, they drove me to the airport and I tried to change my ticket in my mind. I did, I couldn't get my ticket changed. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to do this. And, um, I went to Nebraska, um, very scared, very, un, you know, just didn't know what was happening. You know, I didn't want to move to Nebraska. I did not want to do that, and I did not want to go to a halfway house, and I did it. And um, when I got to the halfway house, they said, you have to, there was rules there, and that was another thing that was throwing me off because I never had rules, you know. And they said, I want, that we want you to get a job, pay for your, your rent, um, go to a meeting every day, um, and get a sponsor, and I thought, oh, God, I thought I was going to get some lounge time here and some therapy, you know. It was like, what's, you know, I got to, now I got to do all this stuff. So I set out, and I got the job, and I got, I got the, I started going to meetings every day. I got a sponsor, and I started doing the stuff we do around here, and I was very scared. I was very I did not want to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. I I thought I was too young. I wasn't done drinking. Um, you know, I just I just had a lot of feelings about it. And my mind was like, I'm going to do this stuff, and I'm going to go back to court, and then we'll see what's going to happen from there. And three months went by. I'm in this halfway house, and I went home to court, and I was told, you know, I got my license taken away, and I was on probation for two years, and... Um, I decided, you know what, maybe, I, you know, I was doing pretty good in Nebraska. So I went back and, you know, I, I, made, I went to meetings. I got involved in some young people's meetings. And I was doing all these commitments. I was working the steps, you know, and about nine months into this, I, um, you know, I was sitting at a um, young people's meeting and uh, I had a feeling come over me and, um, you know, I knew I was it was okay. I was okay. And this was going to be okay. And, um, you know, that, that obsession, I was obsessed with alcohol when I first got sober. I did not come in here with that taken away. And, you know, nine months into it, I was sitting at that meeting and this feeling just came over like it was okay. And that obsession was lifted. And, you know, my life took off after that. You know, I, I started working steps and doing all this stuff. And I met this girl there her name was Pam, and she was totally different than me. She was a skinhead. She had, wore all black, and she had this, like, this big of hair, and she was, like, white, and I was kind of different, and um, she was coming over to me, and I'm like, ooh, is she, what's she doing? You know, like, I was like, what's happening here? And she goes, do you want to go to coffee? And I'm like, my mind said no, but I did it anyway. I'm like, sure, you know, and we became best friends, and you know, I, I started making a lot of friends there. I, my lot, the steps were working. I started doing all this stuff and, um, Pam and I became best friends and 
She decided one day she was done there because like a year and a half into Nebraska, Pam went back home and I'm like, I was bummed, you know, and um, she called me when she got back and she goes, oh, my dad has these apartments in Santa Monica. Do you want to move in? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I do. I want to come home. So I went back home and I left Nebraska and moved back home and I lived in Santa Monica, moved in with my best friend, Pam. And Pam had been going to, I probably had about a year and a half of sobriety at this point, and Pam had been going to these meetings in West L.A. And she goes, oh, I love these meetings. They're big. you got to go. And I was like, okay. So we go to this Wednesday night meeting, and I was just like, there was a 1,000 people there. And I was like, oh, my God. I did not like that meeting. I was like, there, I felt weird. I was outside smoking, and... um, I was like, oh, God, this meeting's horrible, and I'm not coming back to this. And she's so she kept going, and then the next week, I'm going again. And I felt really weird there. It was too many people, and then this girl came up to me, and then another girl came up to me, and I started making friends there. Next thing you know, that's my home group, and um, it was the Pacific group. It was a really big group, and um, I started getting really active in that group, and um I saw this lady there, and I looked at her, and I'm like, she had all these women surrounded her. And I thought, you know what, she has something I want. And um, I asked her to be my sponsor, and she was going through a divorce. She had cheated on her husband. And she just was doing the duty, you know, and I I really liked what she was doing. And um, I got her for a sponsor, and I've had her for 28 years. And um you know, I started doing a lot of stuff in that group. You know, we went to the yard, Clancy's yard. We did all that stuff. There'd be these, um, what do you call those things we did at Norm's? Watches where we sit at a table and we, we wait when our friends turned one year. Like we'd sit, all of us would be at Norm's. And it was a very active group. And I had a big, huge group of friends there. I was working steps. I was doing all the stuff. And... I loved it there, and I was in that group for about 10 years, and um, I met Greg in that group, my husband today, and um, we got we got married, and we had a big AA um, wedding, and I really liked it there, and uh, God, I loved that group, and I loved my friends, and I loved everything, and I was sponsoring women. I was doing everything. I had, like, this awesome life, and then I got pregnant, and... Then one day, Craig comes home, and he's like, what do you think about Salt Lake City? And I thought, mm, I think we go skiing there, but I don't know. I, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, my job's thinking of moving us out there. And I'm like, oh, no, nope, nope, nope. And I, don't, I did not want to move. I was like, and I had friends that worked at his work that were in the program, and the, their wives were in the program with me. And I'm like, well, why aren't they going? Like, I was just pissed about it, and we moved to Salt Lake City, which I did not want to do, and um, we got active there, and then we weren't, then, you know, I had the baby, and I got a job, and I did, we, you know, I did all this stuff, and then I, I didn't understand, see, you know, when you have a baby, it's, to me, it got really hard, like, he worked nights, I worked days, we had the small infant, and my AA life was slowly getting smaller, you know, and I started getting really, really crazy there. Did I like Salt Lake? Mm, 
I like the ski in there. I like some of the stuff, and there was some stuff I really didn't like. And it was difficult. It wasn't the Pacific Group. And I felt like I was going downhill there. And I go, we were there for about eight years. And um, I go, I told Greg, I go, I think I would like to move back to California or somewhere because I, t- I did not want to stay there. And um, he's like, well, we'll see, you know. And so a job came open in L.A. and here, I think. And then something happened, and I thought this was meant to be. If some- and then I started talking his mom into it. And next thing you know, she's like, oh, yeah, I could move to Seattle, too. And we're kind of checking it out here, you know. And then a job came open for him, and then I got a job here, and then we moved here. And, you know, first we moved to Bainbridge Island, which, let me say, was not a good choice for me because it didn't have enough meetings there. Do you know, like it had a couple meetings, and it was an island. I wanted to live on an island because I thought that sounded kind of good, you know, because kind of country, you know, and stuff like that. But I, once I moved over there, I got in trouble. Like the first day, a couple weeks I was there, I got in trouble from the neighbor, the dog bit the chicken. And then I got stuck in some guy's um, front yard with the Jeep. We had the wheels. It was, I didn't know how muddy it was here. And it, it was that year in 95 where it rained a lot. And I, his tires sunk in there. Huh? Oh, 2005, sorry. And um, so, you know, I got in the newspaper there. I was like, oh, my God, I am not fitting in this town at all. Like, I could hear people at my work go, some dum-dum got stuck in someone's front yard. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, there just wasn't enough for me there. And I wasn't doing that good in AA when we moved here. So then we moved to Ballard, and I knew I needed to get really active again here. And... um, we started going to Agape, and um, Agape was our first meeting for Greg and I, and um, Rita was there, and um, she really she really did help me. I mean, I went to a lot of meetings with Rita, and we had the, it was Rita, me, and this guy named Marty. We would all, she would, we all, three of us would just go to all these different meetings, and then she got jealous of Marty and I, and then she was mean to me, and then, you know, that story. But it helped me see all the meetings that were here, and then I started going to other meetings. I mean, she did help, you know, and um, I got super active in Seattle, and I started... I started doing things. I went to 90 and 90 again. I started sponsoring women. I started working the steps. I started doing... I started doing the things I did in my early sobriety. And, um, you know, my life started getting really good here. And, um, you know, Greg and I's relationship was good, and and our son was growing up here. And um, um, then Greg decided we needed to start a meeting. And at first I was like, oh, God, I don't want to do that. You know, like, my, I don't want to do anything. I just want to let you guys know. I'm the, my head says I am not doing anything, no way. But then my mouth always says, oh, okay. Like, I don't know why that I learned that in early sobriety. Like, just do it. Just say yes. You know, my sponsor always says never say no to an AA request. My mind always says no, though. Inside there, it's like, nope, nope, nope. And I said, okay, well, let's see. And um, all these people came, and we, we discussed it, and we got this meeting. We started this meeting, and... It's been growing ever since, and and then 
then Julie and Matt moved out here, and um, then they got the fall Seattle conference going, and, and there's a lot of stuff going on here, and um, a lot of good AA, and, you know, I had my 30th birthday this year, and my sponsor came out, and um, she spoke here, and, you know, a lot of things I heard from what my sponsor said, and, you know, I hear a lot of good stuff from speakers at the podium, and one of the things she said is that if you're not happy in Alcoholics Anonymous, then you're not doing something right here, and I really, that really hit home to me, and, um, you know, I think that for me, working the steps and working with other women, doing the service here, and I have always had a service commitment at my home group, and, um, you know, being a part of AA, like I do as much as I do as I did in my early sobriety now, and um, my life has grown. And another thing she said that really, really stood in my mind is that, you know, we just don't sit around and read steps and talk about them. We do the steps. We practice those principles in all of our affairs in our life on a daily basis. We just don't, because, you know, a lot of times... I want to sit there and just go over and over steps. I want to just read it, but I don't want to do them, do you know? And, um, you know, and that's another thing which I've been trying to practice this year is, is take those steps that I'm reading and practice those steps and those and use those principles in all of my affairs. And um, that's been kind of a big one for me. And, you know, my life has gotten, how much time? I feel like I, oh, God, this is good for me. I don't know what happened tonight, but I have five minutes left. And um, usually I go way over. And, um, you know, I um, I really love sobriety. I mean, if you're new here tonight, you know, I'm just going to say from from my perspective and what I've done is do what the, the people tell you to do. Go to meetings no matter if you want to or not. Help other people. When I was first new, people said, I heard I hear people here say you can't sponsor anybody till you work the steps. Yes, you can. You stay one step ahead of them. You can take them to a meeting. You could do all kinds of stuff with a newcomer, you know, and that's what I did. I mean, I maybe didn't have the ability to have a lot of information when I was new, but I could take a new another new person to a meeting if they didn't have a car. I could make coffee. I could some of my commitments were like cleaning the bathroom when I first got here. Do I, do you think I wanted to do that? No, I didn't. But you know what? When I do that stuff, I meet new friends in the bathroom. Do you know? Like every like commitment like that, I have just had growth from. Do you know? And I'm kind of a back, like I'm not an in the front kind of person at a meeting. I like to sit in the back. I like the commitments like the coffee commitments I like the cake commitments I like those commitments you don't see me at I'm not the in your face kind of person and you know for me for me I just you know I just I just keep coming back here I keep working the steps you know and um this year's been kind of hard you know I lost my little Boston Terrier this year it was really hard and um you know what I had? I had the Fall Seattle Conference to go to. I had the Palm Springs, you know, roundup with my sponsor. You know, I had stuff to do so I didn't fall down into the hole, you know. So if you're new here, just keep coming back, you know, and just keep doing it no matter if you want to do it or not because it does get better here. So thank you and Merry Christmas.
Good evening, everybody. My name is Dale, and I'm an alcoholic. My home group is Trillel Thursday nights. I have a big book, We'll Travel, and uh, Bud is my sponsor, and also my friend. I have some other friends here that came from up north. Uh, <clears throat> my sobriety date is July 1973. I'll always be grateful that I took my last drink. And uh, I uh, thank you for that young lady that shared with us. Uh, I hate to follow a speaker like that. You know? She's pretty, she talks good, has a good program, and uh, you know, that, that, that's hard to follow. And when this thing goes off, I'm out of here. Uh, so I'm not a speaker, I'm a storyteller. And I'd like to share with you. I'm going to take my hat off. And uh, I'm an Assiniboine Indian from uh, the Fort Peck Reservation in Montana. I was born at Poplar on uh, June 25th, 19, June 28th, 1925. Uh, my mother was white and my dad was Indian. He killed himself about a month before I was born and it got worse from there. And uh, I've always had some some bad feelings of, you know, I lived on the res for a long time. I have land there. And uh, there's a lot of white people on the res. And I used to be black-headed, you know, and I was darker complaining. I'm fading out as I get older. <laughs> but uh, I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of resentments growing up back there at Poplar and out in the country, and uh, a lot of white people there. In fact, I had white cousins. And uh, we used to play cowboy and Indians when I was growing up, when I was young, and they never let me be a cowboy. And I've always hated that. And, uh, you know, I was... <clears throat> they used to have a law that that they they wouldn't serve Indians. 1955, when they finally repealed that law, I was 30 years old and a veteran of two wars before I could legally drink in the United States. And uh, they were just trying to save my life. And uh, <laughs> but you know, prohibition never never stopped anybody from drinking, and sure didn't stop me from drinking. You know, I've been sidewashed out of a lot of bars and places where they knew about the law, but uh, <clears throat> I was in a couple of the wars and in, in big cities and overseas and all kinds of places where they didn't know about that law. And so I could belly up the bar and put $5 down and get, a, get, get my drinks. But every once in a while, somebody would say, uh, you're a damn Indian. Get out of here. I can't serve you. It's against the law. And I'd say, oh, no, no. I'd say, uh, my name was Juan Zavallis. And, uh, he'd say, okay, speak Mexican to me. I'd say, see? You know? He'd say, get out of here. You know? I didn't know. When I, <clears throat> I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I used to live right down just a few blocks from here on 8th Northwest. 1967, I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous after a really disastrous drunk. 
My wife divorced me, took away my house, my children. I got fired. <coughs> and my my boss relented and gave me back my job, and he brought me out an envelope on the job and opened up, and it said, Dale, you have a drinking problem. Call this number. And there was Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did call that number. And two men came out and made a call. By this time, I'm living up North City and a, <coughs> a little shack and... Uh, I had a big home out in Kenmore, had a new car in the garage, and had a boat in the garage, had three children, a beautiful wife, and a good job, and a girlfriend. And there I am. You know? There I am. I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and two men came and made a call on me, Merle and Laurel. Merle passed away, but Laurel is still alive and still sober Long time sober. This was in 1967. So I'm familiar with Ballard, and, and uh, I belonged to the Last Chance Group on Friday night, and I went to Green Lake and uh, Fremont. I went to lots of meetings. And after three years, I had gotten married again, got my job back, had bought a house down by Lake Union, uh, and... Uh, God, I woke up one morning, and this is what I came, got sober for. Here, I got everything. And <clears throat> I had no defense against that first drink. And one day I was coming from a meeting up in Laurelhurst or somewhere up by a university district, and I went by the Teepee Tavern, and it's up just off of 45th. Now, if there's not a sign for an Indian to stop and get a drink, I don't know what is. <laughs> I went around the block, and there was a place right in front of it, and I pulled right in there, went in, ordered a double muscatel and a glass of beer. I had no defense against that first drink. I had done nothing in those three years that I was sober with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to ensure my recovery. So my mental obsession took over and said, one won't hurt you. There I was, and I woke up. You know, without my car the next day and somewhere, you know, same old story. And it didn't take very long. Now, this is a progressive illness that I have. didn't take very long. Two and a half god-awful years, I was helpless and hopeless from this. I was strong and, and healthy young man, 42, yeah, pretty young some. It's young to me now. <laughs> and there I was, and I finally woke up in Spokane one day, helpless and hopeless, and knew that if I was to survive, I had to get back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got to my first meeting, and I finally took my last drink. And I started hearing things that I had heard before here in Ballard and wherever, the same things that you heard tonight and will hear tonight, uh, the same things you will hear at every meeting, you know, if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. Now, isn't that a concept? Uh, and <clears throat> they started telling me that I had a disease. I didn't know that, see, before. And I didn't hear it in those three years I was around AA. I didn't know that I had a progressive illness. I have a mental obsession and a physical allergy. And 
when I drink booze, this allergy, I break out in spots, you know, like divorce courts and jails and get beat up in strange places with strange people. This <clears throat> mental obsession is what I have to work on now with these 12 steps that I want to talk to you about uh, in recovery. This is what we're talking about here tonight. Recovery from this hopeless state of mind and body that I have. This disease. This allergy. That if I take a drink, the phenomenon of craving starts. And then I have no control over how long, where, what, and with who. See, It was always like that. Always will be like that. I never drank successfully. But I tried for a good many years, and I almost succeeded. I almost would get over the hump, and then I'd go too far and crash. You know, I had homes and cars. I had, I got my, I got my revenge on you white people. I married your women, <laughs> and uh, I had nice girl, nice women, nice wives. I had homes. Always had new cars. Always had good jobs. I had every opportunity to be successful, you know, in this great country of ours. And I would almost get successful, and the booze would kill me. It would eliminate every success that I may have had, and I would become helpless and hopeless. When I finally took my last drink and I started paying attention, then they started telling me what I had to do to recover from this hopeless state of mind and body. If you haven't got a big book, you new people, you have to get one, see. This is where the pure truths are for an alcoholic like me in this big book, about, and we have to read it and study it, see. I didn't do that before, and I got drunk, see. <clears throat> what we need to do together is to practice the things that are in this big book so that the mental obsession doesn't, one morning when I wake up, say, Dale, one won't hurt you. See, that's what I have to guard against. I haven't had a physical compulsion to drink for a long time. But the mental obsession is still there, see. I have to work on it all the time. That's why the 12 steps were put together to show me precisely how to recover from this hopeless state of mind and body. Precisely. That's what it says in the preface to the first edition. We wrote this book, this first hundred people or so, to show you precisely how we have recovered from this hopeless state of mind and body. See, that might That's not verbatim. You know, what I want you to do is to get the exact wording, get the book out and read it and study it, see? That's where you'll learn. I can, I might have a conception that doesn't agree with yours or, or I might misquote. There's a lot of things that a speaker can be, not be exact on. If you read and study the big book, it's exact, tells you exactly and uh, there's some, once it was finally put together and printed, now 
And the third, the third tradition up there says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. In the preface, it says the first time they wrote that, it said an honest desire to stop drinking. You don't even need to be honest now to get it. <laughs> you need to get honest, of course. You don't need to be honest to get here. See, You only need a desire to be here. But there's some things you have to do, and if you're going to stay here, I can't even see that thing, but it'll, it'll tell me, though, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> Scare me. <laughs> There's 12 steps of personal recovery in this big book. Uh, the first one probably be, if there's one step that's more important than others, it's the first one, because that's the beginning. You have to begin somewhere with the last drink. You have to admit and accept the fact that I'm powerless over alcohol. My life is unmanageable. You see, I never thought I was powerless over anything. It was just a matter of bad luck or circumstances or poor judgment, a lot of things. And if I can figure this out, I'll make it, see. But I was always powerless over alcohol the very minute I ingested that booze. Now, I drank wine. It was cheap. Uh, <clears throat> it was 13% or so. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> it was available everywhere, you know, wine, cheap wine was. I drank, I drank everything. I drank vanilla extract. I drank everything that had alcohol in it. But I preferred wine mostly because it was cheap. And uh, I lived down in Atlanta, Georgia for a long time. In that last two years I drank. They had peach wine down there that was 13%, about 65 cents for a quart of it. I know that they ground up the pits of these peaches and made wine out of it. See, that's what... that. That's, and it tasted worse than that, see. <laughs> but it done the trick, see. Took away, took away everything that that was going in my head because when I needed drink, when my body said, you know, I'd get some in me, and then I would say, send more. <laughs> Always did that, see. This compulsion, this phenomena of craving, and so I I drank wine, but I drink anything, you know. And uh, so when I finally come to the conclusion that that is something I absolutely had to do is surrender to the fact that I can't drink successfully ever, never could, never will be, then I had a shot at working the next 11 steps of personal recovery came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Now, I didn't think I was crazy. I'd done a few crazy things, you know, and, uh, you know, I've been shot at and knifed and, and beat up, and I've been in jail, and I've been divorced. I've been, you know, but they were just bad luck most of the time, you know, and uh, the next time it would be different. See, that, I don't know how many times I'd say that. God, and then... Tomorrow it's going to be different, see. But it was never different. When I drank, it was never different, see. And this is a progressive illness, so it always got worse. Always got worse. 
till one day I woke up helpless and hopeless. That's the ultimate, see. For anybody here that may be thinking about, well, I'm young, I'm pretty, I'm this, I'm that, maybe I can have one, you know. Uh, get out the big book and start reading, you know. Call your sponsor. Uh, <clears throat> go to a meeting, you know. Hide in your bedroom. <laughs> but don't take a drink, Because one will kill you, see. So <clears throat> I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me. Saying, I heard early on when I was first around that... <clears throat> Came, came to, came to believe. Now, that made sense, you know. It was easy to remember. And, uh, you know, it's like, if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. That's something that sticks in my head. Bud and I have a friend <coughs> that's passed away 25 years sober. Art Shiloh was his name. He's a Yakima Indian. Art said that like no one else could say it. It rings in my head even yet today. If you don't drink, you won't get drunk. Art said it every time he spoke. And uh, so <clears throat> then the third step says make a decision to turn my will and my life over to care of this God as understanding, see, that I found in the second step. Make a decision. Now, the lady talks about it, she didn't believe in God. A lot of people don't believe in God. They told me if I didn't believe in God and add an oath to the word and make it good. Well, that made some sense. But I did believe in God. I just didn't believe in God's power. I hid from God a lot because I was so ashamed and remorseful over all the things I'd done. And <clears throat> so I, I, I would stop praying so God wouldn't find me. And that didn't work, though, because he knew where I was all the damn time. <laughs> and uh, so... Anyway, I made this decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand. And then got on with the rest of my program. Keep going then. Make a decision to do it though. As soon as you can. Uh, the sooner the better. And then you take a personal inventory. A searching Pharaoh's moral inventory. Moral means to know the, good, the difference between right and wrong. And um, I, I always equated that with immoral, you know, because I was an immoral person. And I was so ashamed and full of, of uh, regrets. And, uh, and it just, you know, it just consumed me. And, uh, but finally, I made this decision, and I started turning back to God, you know. And uh, I used to say, oh, I lost God. Well, he was never lost. God was always there. I was the one who was lost, you know. And uh, so I made this, you know, I, I started this, this inventory. And that's where I found out the true nature of my illness. And that's when I stopped blaming you folks. And that made it a lot easier when I just took a look at me. I made an inventory of not only my immoral acts, but more than that, I started taking a look at dishonesty, anger, uh, 
intolerance, impatience. These are the things that kept me drunk. I, I didn't know what to do about them. I didn't even know that, that they were important. But that's the way I was, you know. Selfishness, self-centeredness. Uh, that's what I was. That's how I lived. That's how I thought I had to survive. So, <clears throat> when I started taking a look at these things in this fourth step, then I, then I had something concrete to work on. And, I, and they told me that I had to change. If I don't change, I don't get to stay. So I had to work on these things that needed changing. That's, that, that's, that's what's so important about finding this out, see. Uh, people told me lots of things through the years, you know, what was wrong with me or why didn't I do this or do this different or cut down, you know. That was, the, that was what most everybody that I knew said, you know, cut, cut down your drinking. Well, that's a good idea, and I would try that, see. But for a drunk, cutting down is impossible. I couldn't cut down my drinking because the very minute I took a drink and I went down there and sloshed around and done what I was supposed to do, it always said, send more. It always did. Always will. And so there's no cutting down for a drunk like me, see. Stopping drinking is the key. That's what I had to do. And this is how I was able to do it with these 12 steps of recovery. This is what they discovered in the beginning. One drunk talking to another, Bill and Dr. Bob, discovered this. They, they discovered certain things, and, they, and through trial and error, they started putting together this program. It took them a long time, you know. They, they started the program Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935. It was 1939 before this book was printed. took them a long time to put it together. And they made a lot of changes and they, you know, and uh, till they finally, they finally put it into print the exact thing that I need to solve my problems in life. And, and I have to learn how to <coughs> change and, not, and stop drinking. Uh, that's the key, of course. If I take a drink, I'm screwed again. I, I'm, I'm done for. And so I have to continue to try to solve these, these complex problems and this mental obsession that I have. Anyway, after I had taken an inventory, I had a sponsor that passed away. He was, uh, he would be uh, 52 years sober today. He was 40 years sober when he passed away. He knew everything about me, everything. We spent a lot of time together. Uh, <coughs> he was, he was not... A good AA member, you know, that went to meetings every day and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Fact is, after he was about 12 or 15 years sober, he never went to meetings. He still had a lot of drunks he helped, and he was, he was, he saved my life. 
He took me in off streets, him and his wife did. Saved my life. Nursed me back to health, you know. One of the greatest things I still hear John saying, Dale, you're safe now. See, and he would spoon-feed me some Carol and 7-Up. I hate that today. I would never eat Carol and 7-Up again as long as I live. Uh, and he would hold me, or his wife would hold me. And uh, they nursed me back to health. Watched me so, because I was hallucinating. And uh, <clears throat> I had, I, I thought they were fruit flies that flew around my eyes all the time. I was going like that for several weeks or uh, catching, trying to catch these fruit flies. They were just spots, you know, from hallucinations. I was a sick person, but John never gave up on me, John Beverly. And, uh, and then he showed me the way, see. There's a lot of times John never told me much of anything, but he showed me. He showed me the way, see, and that's what we're doing today. We're showing each other the way. We do this together, see. And in the fifth step, I talked to John hours and hours. We spent a lot of time. I was retired at the time. John uh, was retired, and uh, we just spent a lot of time together. And uh, so <clears throat> I, I'd done the fifth step with John. And it cleaned house. It, it eliminated a lot of ghosts that were in my head. And uh, so the fifth step, you know, and, and you know, confession is being, has been done for centuries, forever. They've, people have done that, see. It's not, it's not a new concept, but it's a necessary one for us to get rid of that stuff, clean house. And then six and seven are two, two important <coughs> steps. Willingness is the sixth step. Be willing to have God remove these. And then humbly ask God in the seventh step. They're just short sentences in the big book. But they're probably as important as anything written in this book. Humbly ask God then to remove these shortcomings. See? But you've got to be willing to do this. And then, of course, you've got to know what they are. But you've already learned that, see. This, this is what's so great about these 12 steps of recovery. Each one leads, leads us into another uh, area, another uh, option, another way to recover. And so all these steps have to be done. We have to do them in order. You can't jump around. Uh, people do. If people have tried. Work them in order. One, two, three. What, you know, not one, seven, nine or whatever. See. So you got six and seven. No, those are character defects. You humbly ask God to remove them. And God did. The very minute that I asked God, I got down on my knees, and I asked God to take these things away. Take them out of me. Take my character defects, you know, my uh, ego, uh, my entire, all these things, my dishonesty. He immediately removed them all. See. 
And then in about 30 seconds, I took them all back. <laughs> that's the way I am, see? I'm a human being. And that's why I have to work on them all the time, see? It's a never-ending process with me, and I've been doing it now for over 40 years. And I don't have much time left. That's why, you know, <laughs> I'm getting so old when someone, someone called and asked me to speak here, I said, yeah, I, I, I had to come out of my sickbed, see. I don't have many talks left in me, and I got to get them all out, see. I got to make sure that everybody that's possible has heard what I have to say, see. Not because I say it, but because I'm trying to carry the message of recovery. I remember a person told me early on, he said, you you can't keep it if you don't give it away. You can't do that. You've got to give it away. They discovered that right away, Bob and, and, and Bill, in talking. When they discovered one drunk talking to another. They understood one another, see. They understood about throwing up and, and, and the sickness, the physical sickness, and then the mental sickness. They understood all that, see. They had it. And then they, they, they were trying to grasp a way to recover from it. And they began this program of Alcoholics Anonymous for us to where now there's millions of us around, see. You can't go any place without going to a meeting or having a meeting or finding a meeting, see. And there's always some, you know, like me and the young lady, you know, up here trying to tell us, Tell you people how great we are, see. Well, <laughs> we are. See? We are. We're sober today by the grace of God in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And and I'm just trying to... God, is my time up already? Okay. <laughs> I'm out of here. I got to the tenth step. Now there's... 10, 11, and 12 are the recovery steps, are the maintenance steps. I want you, I want everybody to go home and read the last three steps, 10, 11, and 12. Go home and read them out of the book, by yourself, to yourself. And see what they say to you, see, about recovery, because that's the secret. One drunk talks to another, reading the book, and going to meetings and sharing, caring, loving, you know. Uh, and <clears throat> just, I, I'm out of here now. I just, I just got to tell you about this. It says, this is the, really the, the whole crux of our program. This last chapter, the last uh, pro, uh, paragraph in chapter 11. It says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the, broad, the road of happy destiny. God bless you all. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.